with awe and reverence, that you would teach us what you would have us to learn. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is our instructor, who is our comforter. We pray that you'd be with Pastor Adam now as he leads us in the word, that you would give him the words to say, your spirit would lead his, his thoughts and his words. You would strengthen us in your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. As Todd made mention, uh, opening our time in the book of Ruth, you notice we are off to a very speedy start. We're going to cover the first maybe six words of the first sentence. And yet, really, before we even get to them, there is yet another appendage that we need to address before we get actually to um, what we'd probably consider a sermon in the book of Ruth. There are two preliminary questions that we need to address prior to Ruth or our handling of the Old Testament. And the first question was that which I posed to you last week, and that was how do Christians, we as New Covenant or New Testament believers in Christ, how do we read the Old Testament text of Scripture? The answer to that, for all of us, I trust, is with a Christ-centered interpretation. That is, we don't somehow wind our way back around to the gospel, but we find out that the good news announcement, the gospel of Christ, his person, his work, and his resurrection are found inseparably linked to the Old Testament text. And if we neglect Christ and his person, his work, in the Old Testament, his word to us is, you will fail to rightly perceive it. You will fail to rightly interpret it. So it isn't up for grabs. It's a methodological commitment for us as believers to see Christ who is present everywhere in the Old Testament text. So the second preliminary question to our time in Ruth then is this. What is the historical setting of the church or Maybe some of us would use language more like Israel, or we'd say Old Covenant believers. I will most often use language of church just to emphasize the one people of God. So it would be this question for me. What is the historical setting of the church so as to clearly discern how this book addresses them as well as us? That is... If I could be a little more clear, as I read that out loud, it confused even me. What is the historical setting of the church during the time of Ruth so as or so that I can clearly discern how this book, that is Ruth, addresses them or addresses me as I see it? addressing them. The book opens with a historical note, as was read, and is most of the sermon. That is this, in the days when the judges ruled. There you go. That that is our point of access into the meaning and the purpose that stands behind and within the book of Ruth. There's our point of reference, our access to reaping the benefits of the book itself. Now, you'll notice one other thing about the point of access. The writer phrases it in the past. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. With this past tense framing, of the entire book of Ruth. It implies to us, as we get started here, we're we're starting to, as we said before, beginning to kind of push off and start to stabilize ourselves and pedal. We're just getting launched. And as we start, our point of stability is to recognize 
that from the author's standpoint, he himself is somewhat removed from the happenings of Ruth. So he's recording it and looking back upon it. As he says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This is that the historical setting of Ruth is somewhat removed from the writer himself. Consistent as we approach biblical narrative in the Old Testament, oftentimes with Old Testament biblical narrative, understanding the intent of a work, or the significance of the work, or its overall purpose for the people of God is tied to understanding its time and its place. In other words, a book's significance, if we desire together for the next who knows how long, to come together to reap the value that is present within the book of Ruth for us, we must appreciate the fact that Ruth and its value is inseparably tied to the people directly addressed with the book of Ruth in their historical place and time. So that leads us to ask this next question. What is the purpose of Ruth? What is its purpose? So we don't simply just chalk it off as a reading assignment or yet another study, a long list of a long line of studies that we do as the church gathered on Lord's Day. But we ask the particular question, what's the purpose of Ruth? Why is God addressing me with this literature? What's his purpose that stands in, behind, and ahead of the book of Ruth for me, as it was written for the church in the Old Testament, so too also is it written for the church of the New Testament. Perhaps we might ask the question a little bit more along these lines. Who are the people of Ruth's place and time? Who are they? What is their historical setting? That such a word as Ruth would address them, where they are. Who are they? And we have, once again, our historical note. Ruth 1.1. They are a people in the days when the judges ruled. There was a famine in that land. So we find out who they are and the condition of their situation as we understand what it means to be a people under the rule of the judges. So you you ask yourself if you were to sit down and simply open the book of Ruth and you begin to read its story and the author tells you, this is where I want to start, once upon a time. And he's setting a context, a, a, a framework For you to enter into that situation with him once upon a time. Or whatever that tune is that your mind like wanders off on on an episode of some sort of program. And you go off into your dream existence. And then, you know, all the characters from the show are dressed up in some sort of costume. And they're working something going on, some story that's taking place in the mind of the individual as they drift off into this storied context. So the author or writing to the people of God, for the significance of reaping the the values of Ruth says, in the days when the judges ruled. And you now are equipped as a reader to grasp the significance of what that means. But you have to understand what it means that the judges ruled. What were those days like? And thankfully, we're not left to that sound that goes and we drift off and all of us have our own imaginations at work as far as we paint the picture of what it must have meant that the judges ruled. We have the text of Holy Scripture that tells us the book of Judges. 
So in order to gain greater appreciation for the book of Ruth and what it means that there was a famine in the land and Elimelech and his sons and his wife and Orpah and Ruth and all of their plight and the movement of the book from beginning to end, we have to first consider further this morning what it means in the days that the judges ruled. For this, we need to consider the book of Judges. So this morning is a little bit of a historical kind of uh, recap or a historical overview of the setting of the book of Ruth so that we are armed and equipped well to go through the actual book of Ruth during its time and place. The book of Judges opens, if you have spent any time in the book of Judges, perhaps you've read through it, or now you're in reading through it, or perhaps you'll take a look at it later this afternoon. The book of Judges opens with Israel's continuance of the conquest of the promised land. Now, the conquest began under the leadership of Joshua. So if you'll go back with me, and we'll do a little bit of page flipping this morning as we kind of set up to grasp, and don't forget, please don't forget, take this introduction with you, that Ruth is taking place somewhere historically during this time period. That's the point for the page flipping. That's the point of grasping Joshua and Judges, is because somewhere in the Judges period, this narrative was written for the people of God, or should I say, this narrative occurred during that time and the author is writing it post or somehow removed from these days. Yet to grasp its significance, you need to understand the nursery within which it grew, the days when the judges ruled. Go with me, if you would, please, to recognize Joshua, and we'll kind of track a little bit of chapter 1 in the book of Joshua in order to understand the conquest situation that then takes place in the book of Judges. Perhaps I'll just go back to Deuteronomy and then we'll just stay here all day and we'll just begin back in Genesis and say, well, it really began with Adam in the garden. But no, I'll cut myself short. We'll jump in with Joshua and recognize the contrast between Joshua and the life of the people of God into the era of the judges. Now, I just want to read Joshua 1, 1 through 9 so you can have this sense of what is taking place in the book of Joshua. Uh, And then, again, the contrast will stand out of what begins to take place in the book of Judges. Uh, Joshua 1, 1. After the death of Moses, so there's your historical marker for yourself in reading wisely, Joshua. Moses is dead. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Notice there quickly, the land that I am giving to them. That is significant as we look at the book of Judges. It's like, so you've called ahead, and um, I, I thought of this off the top of my head earlier was, um, even though I don't know how many of you remember there used to be video stores or a place where you rent movies. I know those are, the, you know, you probably see them in Shrine now in some sort of timeline of American history. Um, you know, I'm not that much older than you, uh, so maybe together we remember there used to be a place called Blockbuster or something like that uh, pre-Netflix. And... Uh, You used to be able to put on reserve. Maybe a better analogy would be a library book. I don't know if the library functions the way you call ahead. You get a book and it's set aside for you. Therefore, the conquest is over of you going and trying to search the aisle. And all of you in Blockbuster staring as fast as you can left or right to try and locate the movie you're looking for and zero in on it in conquest. I want to grab it before this person because I want to make sure I possess it or so on and so forth as you're looking down the aisle and you're way over here and the book is actually over there and someone else is getting it and they're doing their paper and now you're toast. So the idea is, it's on reserve. I am giving it to you. It's yours. It's a pledge. It's covenantally tied between God and Israel. It is yours. Okay, great. I ought then by faith walk in and 
lay hold of it. That, that seems fairly straightforward. Verse 3, look at the covenant language that continues regarding the land. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Furthermore, he says, just as I promised. Is that something I can take back? It's irrevocable. It's yours. I have given it by promise. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man, not a single individual, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. I promise. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong, very courageous. Be careful, being careful, to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it, not to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever it is you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do it according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, there is a notation here that we we can take out of this introduction to the book of Joshua as the conquest in the land. They're going to face some significant challenges. And so the Lord directs his power to us, our constitution, mankind. We're simply frail creatures. Uh, We worry or scare quite easily. And so we face what we seem to be, uh, what seems to be on their face value, insurmountable odds. And the Lord gives his word to us, I am with you. Therefore, be courageous. Don't be dismayed. I promise, I'm with you. So there is a present of significant challenges. Uh, Another consideration there is Moses had prepared a successor. The young man Joshua. So Moses dying off the scene. Moses, my servant, is dead. And here stands Joshua. There wasn't like a lot of people standing around like, okay, who's going to do what next? Here's Joshua, and there's, there's an indication Moses clearly prepared Joshua to lead the people. Moses is assistant. He's being trained, cultivated, ready to lead Israel into this conquest situation. Take that and move over to the book of Judges. With this idea of the Lord being with them in the land that he swore to give them, Go over to the book of Judges just by contrast as we see this generation now at the point of the death of Joshua. So from the death of Moses to the death now of Joshua, if you're in Judges chapter 1, notice just verse 1 and 2. In contrast to Joshua 1, all this wonderful covenantal language, it's unilateral. It's what God will do for you. And now here this generation under Joshua at the opening of the book of Judges, notice their history. Judges 1.1, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So here at this point, then the Lord says, Judah shall go up, behold, I have given the land into his hand. Judah shall go. Now, we can't make too much. I certainly cannot make too much of the fact that clearly there was uh, not, Joshua had not prepared a successor. At this point, if we look at, again, Joshua, we see that Moses, my servant, is dead, and here is Joshua prepared to function in that role. At the death of Joshua, Israel is caught looking around. 
There's not a large commentary on that from the book of Judges, but we do see that there is a vacuum of leadership at this point with the death of Joshua. I don't know if this says more about Israel or more about Joshua or a little bit about both or exactly how all of these things transpired. Here we find Israel standing with a vacuum of leadership. Now, we could immediately say, aha, we've located this situation, the problem, and no more, everything from this point makes sense because of this. But really, there is an indication that there's still some good things in place for Israel as they're facing these significant challenges of inheriting the land. And that is, notice their activity still, or their disposition, is after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel did what? They inquired of the Lord. So there is some sense in which this generation with Joshua is still inclined towards seeking the face of the Lord. They're still laying hold of those covenant promises. You are for us. You are with us. It is our land. And we're confused. We don't have a sense of direction and courage. We turn to the Lord. So there's a sense in which collectively their orientation is still at the beginning of Judges, positively inclined toward the Lord. Now, one question as we approach this issue of leadership. The leadership that needed to emerge at this point, you notice in verse, uh, at the end of verse 2, the question is this, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight them? Now, I don't know, this is usually a very strong polemic or argumentation of atheists against um, uh, Christian scripture that if you were to read the brutality that takes place during the conquest here at this point, it proves that God is brutal or that Israel is outrageous and immoral and that scripture's teaching must be done away with because there is a God of the Old Testament, a God of the New perhaps, Or there is a sense in which if this is condoned in Scripture, God is wrong or perhaps immoral. Or the idea that some take, typically kind of our Catholic friends would take, that there is Scripture within there and there are portions of it that are simply narrative stories that really don't have any truth claimed directly that these things actually occurred or took place. Therefore, we read portions of the text of Scripture, not all of it with the equal amount of force. One of the questions, I say all that to say, one of the questions that we do wrestle with, each of us, I imagine so, as we read of the conquest of Israel against the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Philistines, so on and so forth, is, because it is, at, at times, it's, it's, it's brutal reading. It, it challenges our sensibilities or sensitivities. And the question is this, sometimes we ask, why did God command Israel to completely drive out the peoples of the land? Or to go into a land where the Canaanites are essentially living out their existence and Israel comes in as an aggressor and begins to utterly destroy all who are present in this conquest of the land. And as believers, sometimes we can read it and feel a little bit uneasy and we're glad that we're through the judges period in our Bible reading for the year. Why? And I I can't do all of the apologetics this morning. It's not my point or my purpose. But I I do want to ask the question, why would God so command Israel to completely drive out the peoples living in the land? And the reason is really located in Deuteronomy 2018. Um, I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there if you want to jot it down. The reason for total dispossession that is, a people possess the land that I am giving to my people, and God commands them to totally dispossess. And it involves, what we would say, destruction of the peoples in Canaan. And we ask why. And the answer is this, Deuteronomy 2018, just a single text to consider more fully. And it is this, quote, In order that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices... 
Now, they're abominable practices. The text goes on, and, and this is significant for our understanding of Israel in the Old Testament, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. The result is you will sin against the Lord your God. Do you see, do you see what that is? It's not just the abominable practices, indeed. They rise up as a stench before the Lord, as a blight upon the land, upon humanity, upon His image in humanity. They are indeed abominable practices, but it isn't only that they do these things, but even more so, the motivation for why they do these things. They have done them, they do them unto one another in honor of their gods, and so that you will then sin against the Lord your God. Do you see what it says about the nature of the church? It isn't simply that we read an Old Testament people as a geopolitical community, that it's simply a physical external people living in a physical external kingdom. In a physical external land, it is deeply spiritual. Indeed, the practices themselves are enough to incur wrath. But the warning isn't simply unless you perform abominable practices, but indeed, lest you perform them in honor of deities. Therein lies the problem. Prior to their manifestation is the sin deep within the heart that is motivation unto why these things then manifest themselves or why these things then occur. God is not simply concerned with spiritual or with Israel's physical well-being in the land. He is concerned with their heart and with faith in the land. A little note on what are some of the abominable practices. Again, I don't want to make too much of the practices themselves. But they are horrific. And they do stand out as certainly deserving of wrath. But all of us here bear sin that is worthy of wrath. To mention, nonetheless, practices in the land that were occurring, that Israel was to come and dispossess from the land. Child sacrifice in honor to their gods. Incestuous relationships one with another, even in marriage. Mutilation of human beings and the placing of them on display. Wicked trade and exploitation of women and children. Again, to just note the practices, but indeed the warning is they do it in motivation of their gods. So you also will commit sin against the Lord your God. Sin against God is the issue. So Israel is called, go in and possess the land that I am giving you. And that possess possession positively for Israel involves dispossession of the peoples in the land. However, we just read of the courage, right, from Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. I am with you. All right, here comes a significant mountain. I don't know if we can climb it. I don't know if we can get over it. Look at these people. Look at their tools. Look at their land. Look at their abilities. Look at their intelligence. Look at their craft. Look at their numbers. So there are challenges, but there are promises that stand behind them that God himself is giving them the land. He will fight for them. So you think, great, we're going to watch through the book of Judges, Israel begin to establish the conquest and continue it. Well, from the death of Joshua in in Judges 1, look over at verse 28 and let's read a little bit of the outcome so far. Remember, we're still within the first chapter. Now, the book of Judges originally didn't have chapters. 
So uh, we recognize there's some time here, so we can't say, wow, in a, in a chapter. But nonetheless, it is quick and short and to the point, as the narrator writes, uh, during this time of the failure of the conquest. Remember, you're not supposed to go in and have to do too much. In a sense, indeed, you need courage and continue to persevere and continue to wage war. But remember, God is fighting for you. He has put the library book on reserve. It, it, calm down. Don't go 100 miles an hour there. You're going to be able to get there, and the book's going to be there. It's on reserve. I am giving it to you. Everywhere your foot will, your, the sole of your foot will tread. So you think, great, take possession. Walk up to the counter and claim it. Verse 27, Manasseh of chapter 1 did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages. So then from there, we already have a comment that they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Look at the very end of verse 27. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Wait a minute, wait a minute, something's going wrong here. They're not supposed to persist. What does that even mean that they persist? I'm sure they want to stay, but it's your land. God gave it to you. No, 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 you don't understand. The Canaanites didn't want to leave. Right. Be courageous. I am with you. It's not their land. It's yours. I promise it to Abraham. But they don't want to go. Verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. All right, well, let's cut a deal. But notice the comment of the writer. But did not drive them out completely. Do you see obedience is waning? Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. So the Canaanites lived among them. But, okay, they became subject to forced labor. But that's not the deal. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. The end of verse 32, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. So they, the Canaanites, lived among them. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan. Here's the, another tribe, Dan. They, they pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. Look at the text. For they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The library book is mine. Take your hands off it. It's reserved for me. I'm not letting you have it. Wait, wait, wait. That's the idea of the reservation system. It's my possession. So the Lord had set the land for Israel. It's yours. Well, the Amorites told us we're not allowed to come into the plains. One author notes this comment as we work through the book of Judges. This Failure at the end of chapter 1 here, as again it begins with death of Joshua. Now they inquire, who shall go up and fight the Canaanites? We're in big trouble. Judah goes up. And then a record of they didn't do it, they didn't do it, they didn't do it, they didn't do it. Up next, didn't do it. Up next, didn't do it. Up next, they said you're not even allowed to come in. This failure of obedience accounts for the disastrous history of the entire nation for the next two or three centuries. With that note, I want to make two simple observations regarding God's people, both in the Old and in the New Covenant. Number one, That defection from God's word 
wounds the immediate generation. Again, defection from God's word. It doesn't matter if you're in the old covenant or the new covenant. The one people of God are given the word of God. And when we walk from it, we defect and leave. It wounds the immediate generation. Notice the first generation. We're in there. The Canaanites are too. But hey, guess what? We have our thumb on them. That's not the deal. They will influence you. Physically? No, we're, we, we got them. No, spiritually. You will sin against me. Because they sin against me. And they will lead you in their spiritual practices. You will leave this covenant behind you. No, we got our thumb on them. They'll influence you. And what we watch in that immediate generation is physical control. But slowly they start to erode spiritually. We think of that proverb again and again and again. And I I should have looked it up. It's coming to my mind now. Uh, I don't recall the reference. But uh, that same concept in the Proverbs of will you, the question is posed, I think, from the teacher to the student, will a man carry coals, hot coals in his chest and not be burned? Can you you be that close and not be burned? This is a word. We got control. We're setting the boundaries of the relationship. They're in suppression to us. No, you can't carry them so close and not be burned. So I conclude then with point one, that defection from God's word wounds the immediate generation, but even more so. So so here they are, the first generation. We got a rap on them. But even more so, their influence utterly destroys the second and the third generation. And that's what you have, a slow but sure canonization of Israel through the book of Judges. They're not even to be present lest they lead you down this path. No, we need roads built, ditches dug, cisterns put in place. We'll make them do it. They will destroy you. And that is exactly what we see is a progressive canonization of the people of God in their own land. Perhaps you remember this comment that we saw from the whole in your, or I think it's the whole in our holiness from Kevin DeYoung. We cited this for you during the book of Revelation. But it's, it, it's simple because it continues the exact same way that the church has always been. He says, quote, The man who attempts Christianity without the church, that is, who has it all under control, knows when he needs the church and when he doesn't, the man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot. We've got them under control. We're all right. They're forced labor. Okay, yeah, so you're lightly in the moment. You feel lightly wounded. No big deal here. Look away. Nothing to see here. Keep moving. But he shoots his children in the leg. Then he shoots, or it shoots, or they are shot. That is, he shoots with his own choice his grandchildren in the heart. It may wound. You, to walk away, to defect from the Word of God, periodically step in Lord's Day worship and periodically step out because you've got it under control. But you will indeed be wounded. But if you are only wounded, your children and grandchildren will be destroyed. Defection from the Word of God destroys. Slowly, And subtly, but surely, there will be a canonization of your family. Or might we call it in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, a slow Babylonianization. 
as the great symbol in our era of the New Testament resurrected community is Babylon. The second comment that makes sense and leaps off the page here for all of us considering the history of Israel is that wisdom in our own eyes fills the vacuous space that is left when the Word of God is removed. So we're doubly damned. We leave and defect and we're on our own and we're making our own choices. But they're not even being informed by the Word of God. Thus our choices are even worse because our choices are rooted in our own wisdom. We have nothing revelatory to look at. So we simply look within and we make ridiculous comments about our feelings and our emotions. How we think. Rather than conformity to the will of God that is revealed. Our own wisdom takes the reins. Our own eyes analyze the landscape. And we fill the vacuous space with more of us. Instead of recognizing our judgments are feeble and frail, we think highly of ourselves and think we have it under control. That's why we say when we study the Old Testament, there's nothing new under the sun as declared. Indeed, the human condition, we are united in sin. So also are we in need of the Savior. We tend in our own thinking, and and we know each of us knows this is true. And so we are warned in the New Testament that we want friendship with the world or with Canaan or with Babylon. We don't mind a little bit of canonization. Or I think the, uh, uh, I forget their names now, Californication, I think is the term we would call it these days. Who was that group? Who was it? Red Hot Chili Peppers. Thank you. That's it. To use a non-biblical context. Or we might say canonization or Babylonization. Either way, Californication is that idea. That we want friendship with the world. Even though we know it places us at enmity with God. We know it does. Considering the book of Judges further, what what would you in your mind right now, what what do you think things are going to turn out like? You know, we don't have to be geniuses to consider once God has laid forth commands to be obeyed and they simply decide we've got a better path than you, we're not really going to do it. We've worked the system out with the Canaanites. Thanks for your help. If we need it, we'll call. How then do you think things will progress, indeed, from bad to worse? Look, if you're there in Judges, just look over to chapter 3, quickly, over to 3.7. I'm running out of time, and I'm not even through point 1. Chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, so again, we're simply removed a very short period of time. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You need to dispossess the peoples because they will cause you to forget the covenant. No, 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 we've got it under control, thanks. Well, verse 7, they forgot the Lord their God. And they served the Baals and the Asheroth. That is, they pursued their own idolatries. They, They were canonized. The next major section of the book exposes this. Now, the way the books of Judges is working, you're going to move from, and I just quickly jot down, you have a couple in between there, but I'm highlighting the the significant tracing of the cycles of the Judges. And from this point forward, from chapter 4 on, you're going to watch things go from bad to worse for Israel. Because again, they've got a better roadmap for their own lives than what God has laid forward. They figured it out. They they have their training wheels removed. Yet the book of Judges, cycle after cycle, leading us to the book of Ruth, shows that the decline of their obedience is so terrible that the years of oppression 
Now, the tables are being flipped. Dispossess them. We've got it under control. We oppress them. The decline of their obedience is recorded throughout the book of Judges. From Othniel, and I know you're not memorizing these names, I just offered them. From Othniel, Ehud, Barak, Gideon, Japheth, and Samson. Now we're moving in Judges like this. Well, like this, for now, because I don't want to give away my conclusion. We're moving like this. And through those judges, we see they start to move like this, from bad to worse. And how do we know that? And this is, um, I don't want to say mind-blowing. I said that last week. It is interesting, significantly so. The years of oppression by those whom they were commanded to dispossess. Right? They're not even supposed to be there. They become oppressors to Israel. The tables are flipped. And those years of oppression by those in the land who don't belong there, gradually working this way through the cycles of the judges, those years that were initial uprisings and problems, come to outlast the years of Israelite peace. How did such a small, contained situation unravel and explode to where we are subjugated to them for longer periods in our history, in our land, than they are to us. How is that even possible? Because we have disobeyed the Lord. The land that God promised them, that everywhere your foot shall land, I'm giving it to you. I know, be strong, courageous. They're huge. I am with you, though. Not them. I'm with you. Take possession. And we find out through the book of Judges that the land that God promised Israel is anything. We could put anything in there but the term rest. Land that God promised Israel is anything but at rest. They're declining spiritually. They're slowly being canonized. Final portion of the book of Judges now, where you find out the years of oppression are outlasting Israel's own years of peace in their own land. The final portion of the book of Judges draws our attention, and this, this continues to just, it, it's so telling about our own sinful hearts when we declare we know better. Think about that for a moment. I mean, you could, you, you could apply that again without specific. You could apply that in your own specifics. What is the heart's disposition? I know better about how to carry hot coals in my own chest than your own word declares. Don't worry, I get it. The lesser among us, the, you know, those who didn't work out Darwinianism well enough, I know. They're less than me genetically. They might get burned, but I've got it. No, we don't confess Darwinianism, humanism. We recognize that we all bear Adam's guilt. And the word of God speaks with equal force to each one. I know better. You don't know better. I don't know better. And the final portion of the book of Judges draws our attention to the shocking, I mean, it is shocking, moral chaos. Apostasy, outright apostasy, 
and the wicked religious practices of guess who? The priests. So you move from Joshua, Judges, and I'm going to do it like this, from Joshua to Judges, and we're going to do this, Ruth. Because again, it's in the days of the Judges when the Judges ruled. This, this putrid context is where Ruth takes place. And so you go from Joshua, Judges, Ruth, to Samuel. And so during this period, tracing out Israel's history, I draw your attention simply to Eli the priest. And I won't go into this text, but simply to note the shocking moral chaos, the rock bottom of the religious practices of even Israel's priests. You get to 1 Samuel, find out Eli the priest. Now, mind you, he was the final guardian. The priesthood is the final guardian of Israel's worship before God. They're they're the last man standing in right worship with God. They're entrusted with worship. They're the guardians of Israel's theology. Right worship. By the time you get all the way down to the priesthood, the last man standing, you find him and you find his two sons acting so wicked, corrupting Israel, that they are in their practices. These two sons, of which Eli turns a blind eye. If I just look away, it's not happening. His own sons stealing from the sacrifices. Stealing from the sacrifices. And indulging in fornication. Living sexually immoral while on the job. Israel is an absolute religious chaos. They decided they had a better plan. And the end result is disaster. No identity. It doesn't affect just you to make these choices. Your children rise up to not know the Lord. It affects your children. And they might, again, know the Lord on Christmas or Easter. And then eventually their children don't even go. United savingly to Christ. We have a better way. We got things under control. By the time we move to 1 Samuel, even the priests themselves are stealing from the Lord and fornicating with women at the tent of meeting. Religion in Israel is a joke. Beginning with chapter 17, verse 6, I know I'm going a hair long. I'm wrapping it up in the next hour. Beginning with Judges 17, 6, the repeated emphasis is this. This is kind of leading us to our time of conclusion. Indeed, I am going to land this, this plane in the next minute. The refrain is repeated toward the end. I believe it's seven times. I could be misnumbered, but I believe it's seven times that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is how the book of Judges, even the very last sentence of the book of Judges, ends with that conclusion to leave you there. You started with the death of Joshua and a people beginning to say, let's inquire of the Lord. Well, this is what I require of you. And they said, maybe not. We're going to work something else out. By the time you get done with the cycle, you find out that at the end, a generation removed, there was no king in Israel and every single person. So the collective view is everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. Religious life is gone. The question you're asking me and you've been asking me for the next the last 30 minutes is what does this have to do with Ruth again? And I just want to provide a brief introduction to Ruth right now as we conclude our time and answer that hopefully. One thing, many more things could be said, but one thing is what I'll try to stick with and I think it is the main thing. And that is, what does this have to do with Ruth? And that is the answer set in this dark and disobedient period of the judges. 
it doesn't get darker than this in Israel's religious history. In this dark and disobedient period of the judges, the book of Ruth ends with God's answer of provision to Israel's self-willed, self-deceived, and self-serving sin. The end of Ruth, or the book of Ruth, ends in the days when the judges ruled. God provides for his people, though they be a self-willed and self-deceived and self-serving people. He provides. This is, as I said to you earlier, Psalm 30, verse 5. His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. They're a disobedient, wicked, religiously void people. And God provides. In the days when the judges ruled, consider just for a moment here at the end, born to Ruth was Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. You see, David is the king for which the book of Judges is looking. There is no king. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. God provides David to begin ruling his people. Yet... That's not the ultimate significance, really, is it? Because if we briefly, and I won't start a second sermon, but if we briefly analyze the history of the kings, we find out that they are not the ultimate solution, that the answer to everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, and that there is no king in Israel, cannot be David. Because ultimately, even the kings themselves lead the nation into abominable acts and practices. So... It moves us deeper than David. Far beyond King David, who is indeed born from the story of Ruth, beyond David is David's greater son. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king of his people. One writer says this way. This is what I leave you with as an intro to Ruth. Remember, It takes place in the days of the judges, the worst of the worst. In conclusion, the midst, in the midst of religious, moral, and societal collapse, God had not forgotten or withdrawn his redemptive plan. In all the apostasy and degeneracy, God was at work in the least likely circumstances and the least likely people to accomplish his greatest purposes. Ruth, this humble story, gives hope when all hope seems lost. Do you notice that? When all hope seems lost. That is, again, don't judge our own lives in our feeble sense. It might seem to us that the Canaanites are too powerful. It might seem to us that we've lost our sense of direction. It might seem to us that God be against us by providence. It might seem to us that we have a better way than obedience. It might seem... That's just it. It might seem or appear to be that way. But God sees it differently. He declares it differently to his own. There is hope. And it is steadfast. 
and it is gracious, and it is provisionary. Rest not on our own feeble senses, but upon the word and promise of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, that you would aid our faith, that you would strengthen it, that you would enable us to see with your word as our spectacles. You would aid our vision of life circumstances, that you would incline our hearts for obedience, not compromise, that we wouldn't enjoy a little canonization, but we would reject it, that we might not be found sinning against the Lord our God. Help us in all things. We declare with the judges in the period of the warlords, we are a weak and fragile people. Overcome our unbelief. Strengthen us by your grace. Thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I trust you picked up on